For our scripture reading this morning, we read from Romans 5, so now I would like for you to turn to Romans 6. I want to speak to you on this particular Lord's Day where we are going to be baptizing, I guess, 11 now. We had 13, two of them are sick with all the stuff going around. But on this baptismal Sunday, I wanted to speak to you about this concept of baptism, especially what it means to be baptized into Christ. And certainly the watershed passage regarding this is in Romans 6. So follow along as I read the first 14 verses and make some comments on them here this morning. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Scripture, says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. As we witness the moral freefall in our country and the apostasy that continues to invade evangelicalism, especially as they embrace the woke ideology, we we are able to have a clear contrast between light and darkness. And what a joy it is to see Christ building his church. We see this all around the world. We see it here at Calvary Bible Church. The baptisms that we have in a little bit are testimony to that. And this morning I want to focus on not only the symbolism of water baptism, but also how baptism is used figuratively in the New Testament, as we have just read. And when understood properly, both the symbol of water baptism and its metaphorical use 
present to us truths that should exhilarate every single believer in Christ because they all point us to the person and the finished work of Christ. Now, brief introduction here. Baptize, the term, is linked to two Greek verbs. Babto is one of them, which means to dip in or to dip under. It's often used, for example, of, of dipping a fabric into a dye so that it will be able to take on the characteristics of the dye. And also baptizo, which is a more intensive form of the verb babto. It's a term used in the sense of immersing. And baptize, I should say baptismo, is usually translated baptize in Scripture, but it doesn't always mean water baptism as we might think of it. It's also used figuratively. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 2, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And here the emphasis is on the close identity and solidarity between Israel and Moses, their God-ordained spokesman and leader. But now in a, in a profoundly more magnificent way we understand through Romans 6 that all believers are immersed into Christ Jesus at the very moment of their conversion A magnificent thought and that's why we want to come here to Romans 6 may I remind you the context here the Apostle Paul thus far in his epistle has made it abundantly clear that sin is a devastating problem that can damn a man's soul for eternity. And we know as we look at Scripture that sin, that sin is, is man's innate inability to conform to the moral character and desires of God. In fact, it is so utterly abhorrent to God that it only took one single sin, the sin of Adam and Eve, to ignite his wrath and to condemn the entire human race. And having sinned in Adam, man is innately a slave to sin. And that is proven by the inevitable consequence of sin, which is physical death, which will be eternal death to all those who choose to pay for their own sins rather than trust in Christ to pay for their sins on their behalf. Only faith in Christ can save a man from such a faith. And the apostle now has gone to great lengths to explain the marvelous benefits of justification given freely to all who trust in Christ. And now here in chapter 6, we begin to learn more about sin. And that's why he says right at the beginning in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that, may, that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He's anticipating the reaction of some people, especially the legalists. He says, we have died to sin. In other words, we have been freed from the tyranny of sin. Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, we are now forever united to him. We are alive in Christ. The law of sin no longer has dominion over us. 
We live in the realm of grace. That is the great truth of justification. But hear this, beloved, although we have died to sin, we are not dead to sin. We all still sin. The remaining effects of the law of sin in the inner man remain. We remain incarcerated in this unredeemed humanness. But while the old man no longer reigns, you might understand that he still remains. We are still influenced by remaining sin in our unredeemed flesh, in our physical body that will one day be done away with. And this is precisely what Paul is going to deal with in Romans chapter 6 and 7. But we're just going to look at a few verses here in Romans 6 for a few minutes this morning. And here, what you want to understand, beloved, is that the Holy Spirit is revealing how believers must do something with the truth of their new identity in Christ Jesus. You all understand what identity is. Identity is the, the distinguishing physical as well as behavioral characteristics of a person that defines who they are. Unfortunately, many people don't like their identity, and that's what we see today. Satan seizes upon that and says, you know what, if you don't like your identity, why don't you become something else? And so if you're a man, you can try being a woman. Or if you're a woman, you can try being a man. And on and on it goes. And now we've got, we've got kids, for example, and, and not just kids, but adults identifying as animals, as cats, and as dogs. In fact, I've had along with several other pastors over the last several months to deal with kids, some even in our own church, who were dealing with these sexual fetishes with furries, with little furry animals, with anthropomorphic beings, with cartoon characters. It's absolutely absurd. They're looking for life, and they don't have it in Christ, so they're looking at all these other options that Satan gives them. And by the way, these perversions typically come through the internet, through these little screens that they look at. And these are typically kids that are into the Japanese anime or into all of the other furry types of things. You'd have to look it up and, and to understand it more. It's really bizarre. Kids that are into uh, video games and fantasy world and all of that type of stuff. And by the way, kids that are into this time, type of thing are seven times more likely to become transgender and five times more likely to become sodomites and lesbians. Dangerous stuff. Identity is very important. And folks, the good news is God has provided for us a way to be identified with Christ. And when we come to saving faith in Christ, our identity is in him. We begin to look and act and think like Christ. That's why he says in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, that is, immersed into Christ Jesus, have been immersed into his death? And again, here the term baptized is used metaphorically to describe our immersion into Christ at salvation when we were mystically united to him. Our immersion into Christ included our immersion into his death. It's an amazing thought, one that's beyond our comprehension. What we understand here and in other passages is that when he died in some unfathomable, 
inscrutable way, we also died. The old man of sin that once defined our very nature is now dead. He no longer reigns. Oh, he remains, but he no longer reigns. His dominion over us has ceased. And that's why in verse 4, we read, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Newness, kairos in the original language, it carries the idea of newness in quality with the implication of superiority. We have a radically different disposition than we once did, than in our former self. And beloved, this reality is the key to understand how we can gain victory over indwelling sin. If we were to do the unthinkable and display what has gone on in each of our hearts, even this week, we would be horrified, right? There is indwelling sin that still must be dealt with. And what we see here is there are three things, given the truth about this radically new nature that we have, there are three things that we must do. Let me give them to you and talk about them for a moment. First of all, we must know it in our mind, secondly, affirm it in our heart, and then finally, live it by our will. Dear friends, this is so practical. It's so exciting, so powerful. And I pray that the Spirit will enlighten each one of you so that you can understand these things and apply them to your life. Now, the context here again is so fascinating. Here we see how Christ, Christ Jesus, is forever finished with sin and with death. All right? All over. No more do they have dominion over him. He conquered them forever. Down in verse 10, it says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, here's the point. Even as Christ has forever conquered sin and death, even as he is now living in the realm of God, in the realm of glory, and is no longer in the realm of sin and death, even so, this is true for every believer who is united to him in saving faith. That is a magnificent reality. Verse 11, he proceeds to explain this. That what is true of Christ is also true of us. Notice again here in verse 11. Even so, he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And folks, this is the application of all that the apostle is trying to tell us. Like our Savior, we are totally out of the reach of sin and death. It no longer has any rule over us even as Christ will never again be placed into the realm of sin and death, likewise, neither will we who have been united to him. By the way, this is another great argument against the error that some people teach, that you can lose your salvation. We can no more fall from our position of saving grace than Christ can fall from glory. Please understand that. We are united to him. Christ will never again be subject to the ravages of sin and death. And because we are united to him, the same is true for us. And this is the very first exhortation, by the way, in the epistle thus far. Think of this. Paul has preached 
doctrine for 148 verses, teaching on condemnation and justification, helping believers understand their new identity in Christ. And finally, on the 149th verse in Paul's epistle to the Romans, he gives the first exhortation. Here it is in verse 11. Let me read it again. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. By the way, this means that you need to know Bible doctrine because you cannot do what you do not know. And this is why Jesus prayed in John 17, 17 to the Father before he went to the cross. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. You will never be conformed into the likeness of Christ unless you understand the great doctrinal truths of Scripture. Without that, you will be banished forever to an island of spiritual infancy. And sin will continue to dominate your life in ways that is not necessary if you're truly born again. So, given our union with Christ, given this new identity, there's three things we need to do to effectively battle against indwelling sin. First, we must, as I say, know it in your mind. And this is implied here in verse 11. He says, even so, in other words, in the same way, in other words, uh, um, in the light of the knowledge concerning your union with the risen Christ, now that you're un- you understand your new identity, now that you know that you have died to sin and then you've been raised to walk in newness of life, that no longer do you live in the realm of sin and death, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, this is where every Christian must begin. We must have an intellectual understanding in our mind of these great truths. We must have a comprehension of our new identity in Christ. We cannot live what we do not know. So the Lord reveals these truths to us pertaining to our new identity so that we can know them, believe them, and live them out. And we see this all through chapter 6. For example... Go back to verse 3. Do you not know, he says, that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, having been baptized into his death? In other words, I want you to know this. Don't you know that? Don't you understand that in your mind? Verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Folks, you must know this to be true about yourself. That's what he's saying. Verses 8 and 9, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. In other words, you must intellectually understand these unfathomable truths concerning your union with his death and resurrection. Had he not revealed these truths to us, we would have never known, right? We would have never believed. Why did Paul write to Timothy? The answer is found in 1 Timothy 3.15. So that you may, here it is again, know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. You see, without the pillar and the support of the truth, without the revealed will and word of God, we would not know how to conduct ourselves as believers. So God gives that to us. The Bible is the self-disclosure of the living God. 
And the church is to uphold the truth of divine revelation. We don't invent it. We don't condemn it. We don't stand in judgment over it. We support it, proclaim it, protect it, and so forth. And whenever a believer comes to me with some life-dominating sin, it's not good enough to say, well, you know what? The Bible says you're not supposed to do that. It's not good enough to just say that. I mean, after all, they already know that. It's not like, oh, wow, you know. Now, sometimes they may not, but for the most part, they already know that. Instead, what we have to do is go back to the basics. Dear friend, let's set aside all of these sins that are destroying your life. Help me understand, do you understand the gospel? Tell me, what is the gospel? Elaborate upon that in your life. Do you understand what God has done for you? Do you understand the doctrine of justification? Do you understand how that you have died to sin? Do you understand you've been raised to walk in newness of life? Do you understand your new identity in Christ? Do you understand what it means to walk by the Spirit so you won't carry out the desires of the flesh? I mean, you've got to go back to the basics. And typically, people don't know these things. It's so sad. They live their lives in a church, and they're ignorant. They have such a shallow understanding. By the way, this is why discipleship and Bible study and meditation and and expository preaching and all of those things are so crucial. Husbands, let me ask you for a moment. Do you understand these things? Can you talk with your wife and to your children and explain to them your new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to be united to him? Can you explain the doctrine of justification and regeneration and sanctification? If not, why not? I mean, have you truly been born again? If so, then these things are applicable to your life. And you tell me you don't know them? You don't know them well enough to say, my dear wife, my dear children, please sit down. I've got to explain these magnificent realities to you so that you understand them and embrace them and live them out. You must know these things. Otherwise, you will struggle with sin all of your life. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9, after listing various kinds of sins that were plaguing the believers in Colossae, Paul had to remind them once again of the foundational truths pertaining to their new identity in Christ. And there he says, you laid aside the old self and its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. There it is. So for those struggling with sin, learn these great doctrines pertaining to your union with Christ, your new identity. Know it in your mind. And then comes the second exhortation, affirm it in your heart. Again, verse 11, even so, consider. Now, let me pause here for a second. This is one of Paul's favorite words, consider. In the original language, it's legizomai. comes from that, that word. It means to count or to calculate. Um, it carries the idea of reckoning or, or calculating something, uh, to credit something to someone. Um, we, we might say to regard or recognize this about yourself. That's what he's saying here. Even so, consider or recognize this about yourself. To be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, as I'm putting it, 
affirm this in your heart. Now, grammatically, in the original language, this is a present middle imperative, a technical way of, of saying that it's precisely a verb that, that is a command that is to be carried out upon oneself. A command that must be carried out upon oneself. Consider yourselves. And it also means that this needs to happen on an ongoing basis. The Greek is much more precise than the English. In other words, he's saying, folks, recognize this fact. Count yourself, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Affirm this in your heart. Never forget this. Do this on a daily basis. You see, this moves truth from your head to your heart, right? So that you can begin to live it out. Right doctrine is, is now ready to produce right conduct. That's the purpose of doctrine. Now notice there are two things we are to consider. First of all, consider to be dead to sin. Affirm this, he's saying. To be true every second of the day. Never lose sight of this reality. To say it differently, what you've got to constantly affirm in your heart is that what is true of Christ is now true of me. That's the point. I have died once and forever to the realm and to the rule of sin and of death. Colossians 1.13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And therefore, like Christ, I can never go back to that realm or to that rule because I'm united to him. Remember verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. By, by the way, here's another magnificent text to refute the error that you lose your salvation or that you can lose it. Let me talk about the security of the believer. And I might also add that this is a great refutation to antinomianism that would make the absurd charge that, well, you know, with this type of doctrine, you can just continue in sin, that grace might increase. Oh, child of God, what the Spirit is telling us here through his apostle is that we are to make it a constant habit of our heart to affirm the reality that sin and death has no dominion over Christ, nor does it have any dominion over me, because I am united forever to him. Paul will repeat this in Romans 8 and verse 10. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Christ's death has forever defeated the cruel taskmaster of sin. That's the point. And in his resurrection, he has forever defeated the tyrant of death. And we will be raised with Christ, not only in the resurrection, but also the moment we were born again. The moment we were born again, in verse 4, we were raised to walk in newness of life, which is the primary emphasis of the context here. The old nature was crucified with him, verse 6. That old nature died with him. And immediately when this occurred in some inscrutable way, we joined him in his death and we were buried. 
the old worthless self died and was buried, as the text said, it was done away with. That's the point. It was done away with. But miraculously, in its place, the new self was resurrected with him, verse 6, so that we too might walk in the newness of life. This is such wonderful news. Because of this, we are no longer slaves to sin, right? We have been freed from sin's bondage. When I work with people that don't know Christ, they are absolutely slaves to it. Oh, they can try real hard and they can change for a little bit, but in the long run, they run right back to it. There's nothing to restrain their flesh. Hebrews 12:1, the writer says that we are to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here in verse 11, we are exhorted, therefore, to affirm this to be true on a continual basis. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Cannot tell you how many Christians do not understand this. Beloved, please hear me. When we come to true, genuine, saving faith in Christ, we are not only saved from the penalty of sin that Christ took upon himself, but we have also been delivered from the power of sin. It's no longer reigning over us. Look how important this is in our battle against sin. We can say, you know, sins in my life that are impeding my progress towards Christian maturity are not ruling me. But in, in reality, I, I, I've died to their tyranny. They rule me at times because I have chosen to let them do so. What a fool I am. I'm letting my flesh rule me rather than the spirit. And this is precisely what James had in mind in James 1. Remember in verse 14 and following? He said, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust is conceived, he gives birth to sin. So, dear friends, how foolish it is to give power back to the tyrant that has been deposed. This is what Paul is going to go on to describe in verses 12 through 14. So he says, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but secondly, but alive to God in Christ. And again, this is what we are to affirm constantly, tell ourselves, believe in our heart. Even as Christ now lives in the realm of glory, beyond the reach of sin and Satan and death, because I am united to him, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is working in me. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. In some inscrutable way, we are alive right now in Christ. Verse 6 of Ephesians 2, he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's the union with Christ. Verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. It's astounding, isn't it? This is all part of a predetermined plan. And I'm so thankful that's the case. Because if it was up to me, it would never happen. If it was up to you, it would never happen. 
And we must all reckon this, apprehend this, to be true. This is why Paul prayed for the saints in Ephesus, to affirm these things in their heart. Remember Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 16. He prays that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Oh, dear Christian, please hear this. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And everything about your relationship to him has forever changed if you're truly born again. Now, for, a, for an unbeliever, none of this is true. They're born in sin, dead in sin, Scripture says. They're children of wrath. They're, they're at enmity with God. They're under the wrath of God. They have no life. All they do is struggle to survive. They just pursue the next thing that their, their flesh would, would, would tell them that will give them pleasure or whatever. They grow old, they grow sick, and eventually they die. They have no hope. They have no power in their life, no real purpose. Having spent so much time over the course of my life with a pack string of horses in the Rocky Mountains, I love to put the horses up, put the saddle blankets that are wet in a tent, get the stove going so that they're not frozen the next morning, and sit around the fire with my buddies. And I remember the old beer commercial. You probably didn't think this was coming, right? The old beer commercial. Remember, the guys are sitting around the fire, they're drinking a beer, and one guy says, life doesn't get any better than this. You know, sadly, that's true for people apart from Christ. But life for the believer is way beyond that. And what we have to hope for because of the marvelous truths of justification and sanctification to know that we have been granted eternal life and we are recipients of untold blessings knowing that God has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness and to know that I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now life gets no better than that. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think of all these passages. He is the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all beyond anything that we could ask or think according to the power that works within me. There's where life is. There's where identity is. There's where joy is. Come what may. And do you really think that knowing these things would cause me to want to continue in sin, that grace might increase? Of course not. And given these astounding realities, do you, do you think I would really want to continue to yield myself to sin's tyranny? Oh, dear Christian, we've been radically changed. Know it in your mind, affirm it in your heart. Number three, as we begin to wrap it up, live it by your will. Verse 12, 
He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. In other words, how foolish to obey the lust of your mortal body that is temporal and that is dying. In, in chapter 7, verse 14, remember Paul grieved over, over this in his life. He says, I'm still of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin, verse 14. That is to say, I'm still fleshy. fleshy. Chapter 7, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And he, he mourned in verse 23, for joyfully I concur with the law of God and in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, raging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is my, in, in my members. But then there's Romans 8, 1, right? But now there's no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ. Even though the sin principle, the law of sin, still remains in our body, we are not subject to it. We don't have to obey its lusts. Wouldn't it be great if we weren't subject to some of the laws that are being imposed upon us? Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You should obey its lusts. This is why Paul said in Romans 8:13 that we are to put to death the deeds of the body. Dear Christian, please hear me. Sin cannot be domesticated. It must be eradicated. You must kill it. You must go to the very root of it. Or it will continue to manifest fruits that will destroy your life and bring you heartache. Remember these doctrinal truths. I love how Peter put it in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. In other words, you are no longer part of this sphere of influence. What a magnificent truth. To be sure, we are aliens, aren't we? We're strangers in this land. I mean, I look at some of the things that people believe and do today, and I don't belong here. This is beyond insane. This is demonic. And the reason why... We feel this way is because we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. The wickedness of the world has no appeal to us unless we are choosing to allow sin to remain in our mortal body that we should obey its lusts. John tells us in 1 John 2.15 that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You say you're a Christian, yet you love these things of the world? You have no basis to make the claim of genuine saving faith. And I would plead with you to repent and believe in Christ before it's too late. So, verse 11. Even so, he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Again, I would come to you and say, if you're struggling with life-dominating sins, whatever it might be, and certainly we all struggle with sin at some level, 
but you simply must come back to these great truths. If you have truly been justified, in other words, declared to be righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ that was given to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if that is really true, if you've truly been raised to walk in newness of life, if you are truly enjoying a new identity in Christ, then, dear friend, you simply must know it in your mind, affirm it in your heart, and live it by your will. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And in other words, this is the motivation for our worship. This is the motivation for our obedience. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the apostle then closes this section of his exhortation with such a marvelous affirmation. Notice Romans 6, verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, that is, under the condemnation of the law, but under grace. In other words, you're under the supernatural power of saving grace that is working in you right now because you are united forever to Christ. Oh, dear Christian, don't impede the work of the Spirit in your life. Hear these things. Live them out. And how is all of this accomplished on our behalf? Through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the ordinance of water baptism that we are about to celebrate is a picture of this union with Christ, this identity that we have in Christ, that we identify with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Paul described this symbolism in Colossians 2.12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, referring to the time when we're united to him in salvation, at the moment of salvation, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. There is the, the metaphorical imagery of our union with Christ. And now water baptism is the magnificent picture of that reality, an outward affirmation of that inward transformation. And in a few minutes, we will witness this in the lives of, it was going to be 13, I think it's down to 11 because of sickness, all right? What great truths, amen? Oh, what Christ has done for the redeemed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the unsearchable riches of Christ that are ours. And I pray that if there be one here today that knows nothing of what it really means to have sins forgiven, that knows nothing of what it means to be born again and to have a radically different disposition, a new nature, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they humble themselves before the living Christ and cry out for his saving grace. That today will be the day they experience the miracle of the new birth. Thank you for these magnificent promises, these magnificent realities. May we all live them out to the praise of your glory. For Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen. 
We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.